Liminal Spaces was a six-year, welcome-funded project at Edinburgh Law School which scrutinized regulatory systems that support human health research. The vision of the project was to deliver the first-ever integrated, interdisciplinary, and cross-cutting analysis of health research regulation by confronting the gaps between documented law, relevant ethical and social theories and concepts, and research practice. To mark the end of the project in March 2021, the principal investigator, Professor Graham Laurie, sat down with members of the Liminal Spaces team to discuss their research findings. Hello and welcome to this podcast on regulation as play. I'm Neha Sethi and I was a senior research fellow on the Liminal Spaces project led by Graham Laurie. I'm very pleased to be joined by Graham today to talk to me about this very intriguing concept. So Graham, as an opener, could you please tell us what it is that you mean when you use the term regulation as play? Thank you, Neha. Yes, so for listeners who are familiar with our project, we are interested in confronting what we call the liminal spaces of health research regulation. And this is really about understanding better what regulatory spaces are that um, people, actors, um, stakeholders occupy when um, health research is conducted and when we seek to regulate it. So it's the, the, the idea of a regulatory space is a metaphor. Yeah, it can be either an idea or it can be a, phys a physical space. And that goes back to work that was done uh, in the late 1980s. Um, for us, when we began to look at the way in which health research regulation is currently regulated, we identified four kind of subsets of this metaphor, if you like. We suggested that there can be clogged regulatory spaces, by which we mean there are some spaces where there's lots of argument that there's too much regulation. And an example of that might be clinical trials. Um, we identified a second uh, regulatory space, which was we, we labeled as dangerous. Dangerous meaning that there are significant risks of failure or compromise or lack of trust. And um, one concern there might be um, commercial interests that are not revealed or conflicts of interest that arise when uh, research is being done. Um, a third regulatory space is one we call a transitional space, when we actually um, <clears throat> try to move, for example, from the clinic, from the bedside, into um, experimental therapies and treatments and on through to in innovation. These are currently regulated in different silos. And I know, Neha, you've done work yourself on that. We discussed that in your podcast. And the fourth uh, regulatory space that we talk about um, are what we say is empty spaces. Now, there are two ways we could think about empty spaces. We could say, well, there are some empty spaces that are effectively a regulation-free zone some areas of, of research that are simply not regulated or not regulated well. Um, or um, we could talk about empty spaces where we create a physical environment, we bring stakeholders together to co-produce regulation. And this can be valuable, for example, when we're not quite sure how, to, how best to regulate, for example, when new technologies come along. Or it can be um, a space where we can encourage innovation in a field when um, we are not quite sure what innovation will look like and we need dialogue and, and, and discussion with the, the stakeholders involved. So when I talk about regulation as play, I'm talking about this last example, creating um, regulatory spaces where we can bring various stakeholders and actors together to engage on what good regulation might actually look like. Now, you might still say, well, why do you make an appeal to this idea of play? Well, for me, the idea of play is important here for two main reasons. I'm not, I'm not being trivial about it. First of all, I think the language of play um, helps to establish a positive mindset about what regulation can do. It's about reimagining approaches to 
human um, health research regulation. And that's one of the, the core objectives of the Liminal Spaces Project is to do that. And by using this more positive and, and sort of supportive and facilitative language, I think that can um, <clears throat> help us not only just to reimagine approaches, but it also can challenge some of the cliches around the way in which human health research regulation is, is spoken about as being burdensome and um, un unduly cumbersome and promoting only a compliance culture and a tick box mentality rather than genuine engagement on what, what would be the optimal and best ethical and social thing to do. So that's one reason why I talk about play. But secondly, um, there's actually an extensive literature um, about play and about play for adults um, that shows that there are significant psychological, professional and practice benefits that can come if adults are given opportunities and spaces to play, and by which we mean interacting in a way that's unencumbered um, by some of the rules and regulations and constraints that normally would um, apply in everyday life. So what I want to do with the idea of regulation, regulations play is to imagine these facilitative and supportive spaces where we can actually begin to explore things more adventurous, adventurously and more imaginatively. That all sounds, yeah, really, really exciting. Um, I'm just wondering, though, could you give us some concrete examples of what this might look like? So examples of regulatory approaches that are already happening that represent, in your opinion, regulation as play. So <clears throat> there's um, the idea of what's called the regulatory sandbox. Um, and this um, first came into being in the financial services sector. Um, and it's the idea, pretty much what I'm, what I'm talking about, of creating spaces where actors can come together to test out ideas. Um, in the fintech uh, sector, you talk about the regulatory sandbox as being a, a well-defined space um, in which companies can experiment with innovative solutions, financial solutions, for example, financial packages no, um, novel financial products that they, that, that they want to bring to market um, and the, the, the regulatory environment around that is, is determinedly quite relaxed um, they're supported in the discussions and the engagement by the national regulator and usually this happens over a sort of concentrated limited period of time where they're able to effectively test their business model and their ideas so it's um, genuine and productive interaction on what these products might be, how they might uh, impact on the, on the, the financial market, and um, what some of the consequences uh, might be of, of introducing these new products, but also what some of the regulatory challenges also might be. So that's, that's, the, that's where this idea of the regulatory sandbox comes from, is the financial sector. And of course, that's not our main concern with this project. Our main concern is health research regulation. But I've got two further examples that, that um, actually speak directly to, to our particular focus. Um, one is an international one from Singapore. In 2018, uh, the Ministry of Health in Singapore invited um, stakeholders working in telemedicine and mobile medicine providers to participate in a regulatory sandbox. So effectively, the same idea as I've just described for fintech, they want to use the sandbox to encourage innovation in these areas of telemedicine and mobile medicine, um, while obviously being duly um, advertent to important questions of patient safety and welfare and making sure that they are the paramount consideration. Um, and 
the vision for, for, for Singapore in doing that was to work with these providers in these, these, two, these two areas to set clear boundaries, any conditions that, that, that needed to be established, to support them to undertake clinical and data governance as was necessary to develop and to introduce new, new um, uh, innovations in telemedicine and mobile medicine, but also to help them to co-produce uh, patient risk mitigation strategies. So it's, it's a, if you like, it's a, a, a translation from the fintech world into the, the, the health regulation world. So that's, that's an international example. And say that was introduced in Singapore in 2018. And in the same year, in the United Kingdom, the uh, Information Commissioner's Office, which is responsible for overseeing data protection um, and processing of uh, personal data, including for research purposes. Um, in that year, in 2018, they conducted a consultation on sandboxes for data protection. So again, it's the same idea of creating this, this, this playful space, if you like. Um, and what that was designed to do, that consultation, was to um, push back against the culture of caution that often dominates in data protection, particularly when it's applied to a, a research context, um, because the, the laws are labyrinthine, they're complicated, they're difficult to interpret, different um, actors can take quite different interpretations of whether data protection does or does not allow um, innovation or, 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 or research, and the regulator is very keen to try and sort of bust myths around, around that particular culture of caution, and they believe that the, this consultation on sandbox would be a way to do that, because what they wanted to do was to promote the twin commitments of the regulator to obviously to protect privacy, but also to, to promote innovation. And they were particularly interested in getting feedback on AI products or software programs uh, to support clinical decision making, whether that be with patient data, with images, which also in, it involves personal data, or with diagno diagnostics or personalized medicine. And as a result of that, that, that consultation on sandboxes, um, the regulator, the Information Commissioner's Office, introduced um, a regulatory sandbox uh, program, um, and that's now available within, within the UK. And I can say more about that in due course. For us, on the Liminal Spaces Project, these are, these are interesting examples, but um, we believe that all of this is woefully under-theorized as to what, what, what's at stake, what needs to be thought through, what type of regulatory model is this, how can it be justified, how can it be eth ethically sustained, and what might be some of the implications, and that's what we're looking at under this, this notion of a regulation as play. Great, thanks, Graham. It's really helpful to have the, the two examples that you offered to kind of understand uh, more concretely uh, what this, this regulation as play looks like in practice. Just on your final point, you mentioned that um, regulation as play is, is, to use your words, woefully under-theorised. So then from a regulatory theory point of view, how do you actually see regulation as play? And why do you think that it's important to see regulation in these terms? So... Listeners who are familiar with our work, or you can check out what we've done on our, on our website, you will know that we draw heavily on the anthropological concept of liminality. Um, liminality is a human phenomenon that we all experience in times of transition and change in our life. Um, examples are when we move from childhood to adulthood, um, or when we go from being healthy to being ill, or even during pandemics such as COVID-19, when crisis forces change upon us. What liminality is, um, it's um, effectively um, an experience of, tra of, of transition and change. Um, and it often is accompanied by a breaking down of old structures 
um, and a passing through of this, 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 this period of discomfort or um, unsettlement um, into a new status. So whether it be becoming an adult, whether it be becoming an ill person, or whether effectively, you know, the, the new normals that sadly we're, we're, we're facing at the moment with the, the current pandemic. So often liminality um, is thrust upon us. And it, but for us, from a theory point of view, it's been really helpful to help us understand how processes of, of, <clears throat> of change and transformation actually um, help us to understand better research regulation because it, it, it is a traje- trajectory which is, un- is characterized by being uncertain. Um, so liminality helps us to focus on processes and the processional. But to bring that also to the, to the play notion, um, the literature on liminality um, points out that when we experience liminality, it often liberates us from structural obligations. And in this context, um, arguably the structural obligations that, uh, that we're most familiar with, with in um, health research regulation are rules, regulations, principles, um, legislation, etc. Um, and also, because we are freed up from those structures, it can allow subversive behaviour or playful events. That's actually part of the anthropological literature. Um, and indeed, way back in 1972, Sutton Smith talked about the value of this, this, this kind of space, this, this, this um, playful space, um, and why it's important. And as he said, it's either because we have an overdose of order, too much, I, I, too much regulation, or because we have something to learn through being disorderly. So what, from a theory point of view, what I'm doing is I'm bringing together these understandings of liminality together with um, what I said earlier on about uh, regulatory spaces to see what it would look like and how we could justify from a theoretical perspective um, these uh, playful regulatory spaces. I'm just wondering if you think that there might be situations where play may not be appropriate or actually the most kind of helpful way of looking at things in the health research context yes absolutely of course i mean this is this is absolutely not a panacea and it, it's uh, an approach that would need to be applied carefully and with, with, with real thought um and certainly what i don't want to suggest by this this language is a trivialization of regulation regulation is incredibly important and valuable but going back to what I said right at the beginning about some of the clogged spaces that we see, um, and even if that, they're not necessarily you know, actually clogged, but there's perception of them being clogged, um, or there's dangerous spaces where there, there, are, there are real dangers or, or, or not. And this is a, a, an additional way to think about regulation in spatial terms, to think about how, we, how and when and where we might um, have this additional tool in our, in our regulatory uh, toolbox about how we can explore um, twin uh, objectives. I mean, going back to legislation, the Care Act 2014 imposes upon regulators twin objectives to to, um, protect patients' uh, interests and rights and also to promote regulation. And it's been a real um, central feature of our work on liminal spaces to explore, well, what does that actually mean in practice? So our colleague Edward Dove um, asked those questions around the role of of Rex, who were seen to be um, in some ways obstructive of good research. And actually his empirical um, research suggests that's quite the opposite. They're they're very supportive of research and they they act in a stewardship fashion to promote um, good research and to work with researchers. And this, I think, is a complementary way of thinking about achieving those twin objectives of protection and promotion by creating spaces when it's safe and appropriate to do so, to bring stakeholders together to explore what um, effective, sound and justifiable regulation could and should look like. 
I'm wondering then, following on from your examples of telemedicine in Singapore and uh, the UK ICO, kind of beyond these examples and more broadly, could you tell us what you think play looks like in the health research regulation environment? So, for example, when might play occur and how do you kind of deal with thinking about who gets to play? Um, so who's included and excluded from those activities? Uh, who gets to play together? And uh, yeah, tell us a little bit more, please. Okay, sure. So let's go back to the example that I offered of the Information Commissioner's Office. So as I said, they had a um, consultation back in 2018, and a result of which is they now have a um, sandbox for data protection uh, service that they offer. If you look, If you want to find out more you can look at their website um, and what they say there is this is a service that they offer as the regulator to support organizations who are creating products and services which utilize personal data in innovative and safe ways you know, so they're and the way that they, they can gatekeep that is you have to apply if you'd like to jump into the sandbox and um, to play so you have to sort of demonstrate that you've got um products or services that deal with personal data and um, that you've got a plan on, on, on using those, those data um, it, safely, that it is genuinely innovative and su- substantively so, not just triv- trivially so. So there's a set of, if you like, entrance cri- criteria to pass the threshold into this liminal space of play. Um, but if you pass those, uh, those, those criteria, then participants have the opportunity to engage with the, their dedicated sandbox team um, and that also means that they have direct that the, the um, researchers have direct access to wider ICO expertise and advice advice on how do you mitigate risks when you're processing personal data um, and also and this is of, of, of um, benefit not just to the, the the researchers but also to the regulators how can you do what they call data protection by design so you fold in um, sort of if you like upfront upstream thinking about um, data protection, what, what not only what needs to be done to comply with the legislation, but also what might be some of the downstream uh, consequences of processing and generating and using data as your uh, research progresses. Because as we've said, you know, um, many of our um, publications and, and podcasts, although health research and health research regulation is a trajectory, it's not a linear one. So we don't necessarily know in advance what kinds of risks or, or issues might arise but you can help minimize some of those risks if you can address data protection by design. So from the point of view of the regulator, um, they, I think, effectively are doing a pitch. They're saying, we will work with you in a a number of ways that will help you. For example, um, it gives you access to the expertise within the regulatory office. It allows you to increase your confidence to make sure that you know that you're complying um, with what the legislation requires, but also that your your final product or service that you're developing will also be compliant. Um, it will give you, the, the researcher or the, the developer, a better understanding of these complex legislative frameworks. Um, but also, and I think this is what's, what's really, really valuable in terms of learning lessons across experiences, um, the ICO in this context are committed to um, informing future guidance through these experiences. So they see this as being like a lived and learning experience of working together with people who are developing these kinds of products. And at the end of the day, 
then you, everybody has the confidence to, to, to know and to show that the development of the products and services can be shown to be of value to the public. And that speaks to the fundamental ethical value that underpins all of health research, which is demonstrating and promoting social value. That's fantastic. And I love the idea of, with the ICO example, the fact that they, they're folding in experiences. So that is something that we've also explored uh, in various ways through the Liminal Spaces project as well, the importance of these feedback loops and ensuring that we're learning from experience when we're going ahead. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, so I think that's, that's a very good concrete example. I think what we need more of are, um, is evidence about whether it works <laughs> um, and what, what, what success would look like in these circumstances. I think it's, 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 it sounds good on, you know, on paper and we as the academics can certainly theorise about it, but we'll need much more uh, empirical engagement about you know, what works well, what, what doesn't work and um, uh, what would need to change once you know, th- these experiences build up just through actually you know, being in the sandbox itself. So, Graham, how does this perspective on regulation add to our understandings of health research regulation? Um, I think in three fundamental ways. So, um, first of all, it's an example of co-production of regulation. The examples I've I've offered, I think, demonstrate that. Um, And that speaks to one of our other findings from the Liminal Spaces Project when we conducted a Delphi policy survey with stakeholders um, not just regulators, but also those being regulated in the health research regulatory environment. And one of the key findings was that there was a lot of appetite uh, among all stakeholders to have opportunities to co-produce regulation. So rather than having the traditional command and control, top-down, regulator has a big stick, criminal sanctions, et cetera, they kind of, again, the cliched sort of um, idea of what regulation looks like. And that, of course, does have and should have a role in certain circumstances. There was an appetite for co-production um, in other sets of circumstances. So that all would have to be up for discussion and negotiation as to what those circumstances would be. But I think um, the, the, the idea of the sandbox, the idea of regulations play is something that demonstrates co-production. And I think there's appetite for that. So that's my first point. Second point is goes back to um, what I said at the beginning about reorienting attitudes towards what regulation does and what it can do. Um, and I just want to stress once again that my language of play is grounded in literature. It, there, is a, there, is, there are sound reasons as to why I make that appeal. And I certainly don't want to trivialize what regulation is doing, but I do think we need to help shift mindsets about what regulation does do and what it can do. And I think thinking about um, these kind of regulatory spaces in these terms can help us to shift that mindset. Um, and the third point is that um, creating these kinds of regulatory spaces allows more engagement of the stakeholders involved. Um, and that, in turn, can have numerous benefits. It means that regulation can be more responsive to the needs. Um, it means it can potentially bring greater legitimacy and it could improve efficiency of the regulatory system. And whether that ends up demonstrating trustworthiness, which is another podcast that listeners might be interested in, um, is another matter for, for discussion. But I do think that at least those three parameters could be very strong benefits that would come out of this kind of approach. Uh, you mentioned engagement with stakeholders and in um, 
the, the previous podcast that we recorded around best practice, we talked about kind of the importance of engaging with stakeholders so that we could bridge gaps between theory and practice. So uh, it would be really interesting to know how you think we could bridge theory and practice gaps with the idea of regulation as play or indeed within liminality in general, which, of course, is kind of one of the core goals at the heart of our project. Um, so. As I said at the beginning, liminality is a, is a phenomenon. Liminality is something that human beings just experience in life. Um, from an academic point of view, it's helped us to um, focus our research on processes of transformation and change. I don't think, however, we need to talk about liminality in terms of what our research findings mean in practice. And indeed, if you look at our website and our policy briefs, we don't make any mention of this um, you know, the academic terminology. Um, but what we do focus on are some of the recommendations about what this kind of focus on regulatory spaces, different types of regulatory space, and what it means to uh, reimagine these regulatory spaces and what they can be like, um, allows us to um, support initiatives such as the regulatory sandbox that, that I mentioned before, and in ways that can bring it some legitimacy and also can help us to think through some of the consequences of it. So, for example, one thing we haven't discussed is we. You know, What's the role of bioethics in all of this? What's the role of values and the values that are at stake? Um, a lot of these kind of initiatives might be seen by a skeptic as being driven by um, a desire for market access, a desire to promote innovation. And you yourself have said in your podcast that um, the, the innovative um, regulatory space is not necessarily the same as other spaces about experimentation, regulation, um, sorry, not regulation, research, um, care and treatment. Yeah. So what we what I, I haven't seen to date in the the examples that I've come across is any real rich and deep engagement about the bioethical values that underpin and support these kinds of initiatives. And that's another way I think we can we can bring value here that supports practice, but also um, it, it does so by reference to well developed and well supported theory. So I just have one final question for you. Uh, can't quite believe that the Liminal Spaces project is finished now, um, but it has. So in your opinion, where next for health research regulation? I think the work that we've done as a team um, uh, of colleagues over six and a half years has um, delivered on many, many aspects of, of our, our project objectives to reimagine regulatory spaces to um, explore what's going on. We've uh, made conceptual contributions. We've made empirical contributions about the workings of RECs. We've got our Delphi study. We've got normative um, contributions about um, what, what we think ought to happen, such as you know, these kinds of sandboxes or um, what we call regulatory stewardship, and there's briefings on that. Um, I think the next step, not necessarily for us, it'd be another project, but the next step is, how, is gathering evidence gathering evidence on how far, how well, and why diverse regulatory models work or why they fail. We've got some insights to that. That wasn't a main driver of our project. I think we've got um, a, a whole new set of questions that come from our, our research findings that can, uh, beget, that can inform that kind of empirical work. But I think that is the next main step about getting some evidence about what is actually working and not working in the health research field. Fantastic, Graham. So as always, you remind us, we've still got plenty of work to do. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Liminal Spaces podcast. To learn more about the project and to listen to the full series, please visit us at www.liminalspaces.ed.ac.uk. This has been a production of Edinburgh Law School at the University of Edinburgh.